And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, March 9th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, we'll explore the back-to-the-office question. The trouble with online meetings is online meetings, plus why the District of Columbia wants the federal government to fish or cut bait. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Treasury Department's Bureau of the Fiscal Service recently launched a government-wide marketplace for agencies looking for financial management services. The Bureau says it exceeded its cost savings goal by having more agencies adopt shared financial services. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman got an update from the Bureau's Commissioner, Tim Gribben. The vision for the marketplace is for us to offer solutions and services that comply with financial management standards and, and other common capabilities across the financial management sector to make it easier for agencies to focus on their unique needs that support their missions through a common set of solutions. And we also are looking for the marketplace to to add value to agencies by helping with that acquisition process to make it more efficient and better value in terms of being able to execute on an acquisition faster. So the marketplace was launched in December of 2022. And in the marketplace, what you find are the three federal shared service providers, which is Treasury's ARC, our Administrative Resource Center, the Interior Business Center, and also Transportation's Enterprise Service Center. So part of the marketplace is what do federal shared service providers offer? And the other part of it, and this is what's really exciting to me as well, are the commercial providers who are available. And we already have three commercial providers that are offering their services on the marketplace, CGI Federal, HIC International, and just as of this past week, a company called eMentum. We have additional vendors that are going through the onboarding process. And so these vendors are offering financial management solutions and services that agencies can use today. And they are vendors that then you can easily procure through through the GSA marketplace. We are also, we have the marketplaces open for solicitation of the core financial systems that will be cloud-based solutions using these standards, these federal standards. That solicitation is open now, and we expect to have the those vendors available by this summer. So that's also very exciting for us to to envision what this marketplace is and having solutions already appearing on it. We are continuing our mission to provide exceptional operations and financial management services that agencies and the general public need. So from the FMQSMO standpoint, uh, we plan on adding more vendors to the marketplace. Uh, We're looking at our payment integrity tools, providing a more robust and integrated payment integrity experience. That's really what our focus on is the next year or two as we look at further expanding the digital collection solutions that we're able to offer. To look at this in terms of what the Bureau has been able to move the needle on here, one thing we have seen in this progress statement is that through shared financial management systems, the Bureau has managed this cost avoidance of more than $600 million back in 2022. Can you unpack that a little bit more and explain what that kind of means in terms of the bottom line impact for other agencies? 
what that means is just putting in simple terms that if each agency or subcomponent of an agency that was running its own financial system, its own procurement system, its own travel system, it would have to fund the licensing costs associated with that, the system development costs, and how you integrate that with your other systems, resources you have to spend on testing, as well as the personnel costs. And when you are able to centralize that, you achieve cost savings. So that's where that 605 million comes from is rather than each agency having to do all of that, we do that in one case and then provide that benefit to multiple agencies so that that rather than spending money on licensing system development, they spend it on their core mission instead. So they can translate that into delivering more for their customers by using a, a shared service, a shared license, shared personnel, those kinds of things. Obviously, the Bureau is in a position to flag improper payments before they go out the door and address them. And that is something that has been on a lot of people's minds in the past couple of years, just given what we have seen from COVID relief programs and the sheer amount of money that has gone out the door. In this progress statement, it looks like things are trending in the right direction. But just tell me from your perspective on things, what is the Bureau looking to do in the coming years to further reduce those improper payments. This focus on payment integrity is is one of our priorities. And there's two different ways of looking at it. It's stopping a payment before it goes out the door or it's stopping an obligation before it's even made because it shouldn't be made. And the Bureau, we have the Payment Integrity Center of Excellence that looks at developing tools that are helping agencies identify these things. Like we've worked with FEMA, we worked with the IRS as an example. And then we have our Do Not Pay which is a tool that provides a number of databases that helps determine whether a payment should be made or not. Our focus for this year is those were previously in two separate organizations within the Bureau. We're bringing them together under the Office of Payment Integrity, and we're envisioning what does that future of payment integrity look like, and how do we interact with agencies to provide the services that they need, as well as the states who are administering federally funded programs and how do we look across states. So we're thinking about everything from looking across state lines to providing more resources from an analytical perspective within the federal government. So there's a lot on the horizon. The thing that limits us is the financial and personal resources that we have and the ability to to be able to do that. So we look to be able to provide these services to agencies in a cost-effective way to help not just mitigate improper payments, but to root out fraud. So there's a lot. We were constantly piloting and looking at tools. Last year, we piloted a, an account verification tool that says, yes, uh, jewelry that is you gave us this account, we can identify that that account is something that's yours. And we've we turned that from pilot into program because we've determined that it has been effective. It's tools like that that we're, we're constantly evaluating. And, and we work closely with OMB. We work with GAO on the Joint Financial Management Improvement Plan on what are some of these payment integrity services that the federal government can and should be offering and how Treasury can help satisfy that need. Okay, quick follow-up on that pilot that's now gone bigger and better. What kind of verification goes into that? What is the criteria for verifying whether it is, in fact, me or someone else trying to get that payment? This is where we work with the financial management community. So the commercial banks who help us with this, who, so we use a combination of, we have information about disbursements that we make 
and whether we've made disbursements to a certain account or not. So that's one way. And another way is through the banking community to say, yes, this name is associated with this account. And, and so then we can have more confidence that when we're getting an instruction to pay somebody through a particular bank account that we can verify that that truly isn't a bank account that's owned and controlled by that individual by using a couple different methods. So that's what we piloted to see whether that would be effective or not. And we determined that it absolutely was. Tim Gribben, Commissioner of the Treasury Department's Bureau of the Fiscal Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, why the District of Columbia wants the federal government to fish or cut bait. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The mayor of the District of Columbia recently urged the federal government to get its people back into their offices or give up billions of square feet. The city has ambitious economic goals that could, in its view, make better use of that space. For details, we turn to D.C.'s deputy mayor for planning and economic development, John Falchicchio. Mr. Falchicchio, good to have you on. Well, thanks so much for having me. And just maybe if you would zero in with more detail on what the city would have in mind potentially for... I guess mostly the leased space that the federal government now occupies, that is to say, pays rent on, but doesn't have any people populating. Absolutely. So, you know, what we are first and foremost, our ask is for the administration to bring federal government workers back and do so by having an enterprise wide policy on return to office. So Mayor Bowser is a chief executive herself. Uh, She has 37,000 employees during the pandemic, 40 percent of those employees were in person. They had to do their work in person. So that means 60% of her 37,000 person workforce is able to have a flexible work schedule. And what we've done is we've said enterprise-wide, three days in the office and up to two days of telework. What we want the federal government to do is have a similar enterprise-wide policy so that every agency isn't trying to leave it to itself. Now, what we know is that the federal government hasn't brought people back in the same way that we have. And so that leaves a lot of office space that isn't being utilized, that we can either utilize ourselves, work with nonprofits to fill it. And so we get that vibrancy that you would have in having more workers in the office. Right. There's a couple of issues. One is the space itself that could be repurposed for the types of businesses and nonprofits you want to kind of engender in the city. And the other is the street traffic itself with the food vans and the small restaurants. It's kind of a wasteland in many ways, in some stretches, because there's nobody to have breakfast and lunch at these places. Well, we know that the federal government in our central business district accounts for 25% of the office space, whether that's owned or leased. And when you think about having that much of the economy sit on the sidelines, it does have an impact on our businesses and our small businesses. And that really has an impact on the number of D.C. residents and residents from the region that they can hire. So for us, this isn't about just seeing if we get workers back in the office for the sense that they should be working in the office. We do think it's a 
better environment, more collaborative when people are working together. But really, it also has an impact on those small businesses and those frontline workers. You know, during the pandemic, we said we're all in this together and we'll get through it together. And now it seems that we're through it. We're saying to folks, well, you get back to work and we're going to kind of hang back and work from home. And do we have any statistics on small business closures or how many fewer restaurants or any kind of metrics on that particular issue? Yeah. So in the District of Columbia, before the pandemic, there were about 800,000 jobs. That's total 800,000 jobs. And because of the pandemic, we dropped to about 712,000. Now we're actually cresting uh, about 775,000 jobs. So we've almost made back all the jobs that we lost during the pandemic. But what we know is that the jobs that are still missing in the city are primarily in hospitality, food service, and uh, attraction. And so what we've seen is tourism bounce back with leisure traveler uh, coming back, but we don't see that same activity uh, in the business traveler. And that business traveler isn't coming back because the economy in the district is dominated by the federal government. And so we need uh, the federal government to come back to draw back that business traveler as well. That will help our small businesses and help our small businesses employ more D.C. residents and residents from around the region. We are speaking with John Falchicchio. He is deputy mayor for planning and economic development for the District of Columbia. And when having these discussions or urging the government, who do you talk to? Because that is a highly decentralized decision from what I understand. So, so far it is. But, you know, the federal government also has ways to implement government-wide policy. And so we talk to partners at the Office of Budget and Management, Office of Personnel Management, GSA, because those are really kind of the three organizations or entities that will help the president make this decision. And so what we're really asking for is that enterprise-wide policy that makes it clear for agencies. Now, even with our policy in the District of Columbia government, the policy, again, three days in the office, up to two days work from home. Each agency director is allowed to implement that in the way that they can still carry out their mission, but give workers flexibility. So the better normal that we're all hoping for after the pandemic can still be realized by bringing people back. We don't need everyone to come back all the time, but we do need them to come back most of the time. And what is your sense of how the government compares to the other big occupiers of D.C. space, and I'm thinking primarily of law firms. There's a few of those down there. And then also the big nonprofits, the AEIs, the Catos, the ones that occupy you know, big buildings, the Brookings, those kinds of groups. Yeah. So over the last couple of months, we've actually seen a couple indicators that show that there is activity happening. So we track that in metro ridership, whether it's rail or bus. Uh, We also have some indicators of office utilization, and that's kind of ticked up over the course of the fall and into the, albeit mild, winter that we've had been experiencing. And so really what's missing is that rush of people that can only come back if there's an enterprise-wide policy by the federal government. Got it. And just a quick question on the number of jobs. You say you're cresting around 775,000. The population is around 700,000, I think. So do we know how many of that come and go? Because you don't have 725,000 to send on the city every day. What's the number that balloon in and out each each afternoon? Yeah. So uh, pre-pandemic, we actually, of all major American cities, we were the one that grew by the most during the day per capita, right? And uh, we really need to experience that again in order to realize our economic potential. And so the federal government could be a big partner in that by bringing workers home. And really what we've heard from, we've heard from some of our partners in labor, labor unions who represent 
office cleaners and office security officials and others who are in that space, real frontline workers, and they're being impacted by fewer office workers coming back. Yes, in fact, the SIEU itself, to name a few, to name one of a few, has a really big building in the district, and those are not the people they represent that work in that building. I wonder what their population day-to-day is of people in there versus their teleworkers. Do we know? Yeah, so I don't have that data in front of me, but what I do know is one of the things that kind of going back to what the mayor said in her uh, inaugural address was that there is an opportunity, too, for us not just to talk about bringing folks back, but if folks are not going to come back and there's less federal office space needed, we have a great opportunity to partner with the federal government like we have on big real estate projects like St. Elizabeth's and Walter Reed and Hill East to do kind of a scatter site approach across our downtown to take sites that are underutilized and bring them back to productive use. Yeah, like the Southwest, too, that, that area. Yeah. And, you know, one of the sites, and I know this is a site of contention in the region, but where the FBI lands, wherever it lands, and it seems like it'll land in Maryland or Virginia with an executive office being here in Washington, D.C., that tract of land on Pennsylvania Avenue creates a great opportunity for us to do a mixed-use development with our partners in the federal government and draw more residents downtown. One of the mayor's goals in her comeback plan is to attract 15,000 more residents to the downtown to make it more vibrant. Yeah, because right now that FBI headquarters, the way it's situated, you've probably walked by that building as I have. And in the winter, it's like walking in Pyongyang. It's just an empty, windswept, forbidding place with concrete rising on either side. Well, we are just a few blocks away from the FBI headquarters. And one thing I will tell you is that it does seem that a lot of their folks are in the office and working. I know it because I see them at the lunch counter often, and they make the lines a little bit longer because they come back. That's the kind of leadership we need to see at the federal government agencies. And a lot of that, I think, is because that's a mission that you can't carry out by everybody being separate. You've got to bring people back together to collaborate, to work together, to mentor. And that's what we think more federal government agencies should do. And what about traffic and automobile movement? I know everyone has this great ideal of green inner cities, but the fact is lots of people drive down and it's getting you know tougher to get through some of these areas. Even the outlying counties are taking some of these measures. And that yeah. really mitigates for people to stay home. Yeah. So what we've seen is some utilization actually of, of our bus is starting to come back. Actually, it's at about 77 percent of pre-pandemic levels. Where we see a lack of ridership is on the metro rail. So we've got to do more to attract riders back to metro rail. That will help us with the traffic issue. The other thing is that metro is doing a great job over the last few weeks of bringing more cars into service, and that allows them to run more frequent service. And so as that progresses, we think that the riders will come back as well. No chance of bringing back 14th and a half street. So we uh, we think that uh, I miss that street. We got we got to get more people onto Metro Rail. That's the best way to kind of take some pressure off the roadways. All right, John Falchicchio is deputy mayor for planning and economic development for the District of Columbia. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks again for having me and appreciate the conversation. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com/slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Washington's D.C. commercial real estate industry is also wondering whether feds will return to work. But first, the trouble with online meetings sometimes is online meetings. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
Critics of telework often point to its limitations on collaboration. Video meetings have replaced the conference table for millions of teleworkers, but they can be annoying. We just heard from the vice mayor of the District of Columbia outline why the city wants federal employees to come back or have the government let go of some of its real estate. Joining me with another angle on the virtues of virtual meetings, the CEO of a company called Frameable, Adam Riggs. Mr. Riggs, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we should point out, you have a little bit of federal experience in your background. You were an innovation fellow at the Treasury Department, correct? That's right. I worked at the Treasury Department for one year, and then I moved over to the State Department for two years. All right. Well, before we get into this, just briefly, what is frameable and how does it relate to this whole virtual meeting and space issue? Sure. So Frameable is a company that's committed to bringing all of the serendipity and efficiency and pleasure of in-person work to the distributed work experience. We define distributed work as being both work from home, but also really it's any time colleagues are not physically with the people that they are communicating with or collaborating with. So two employees of the same company who are at different locations we can say that they're working in a distributed way because they're working hard to collaborate with with people that they're not physically with. And work from home is a version of that where the location's not controlled by the company, but the work is still unfolding there. Sure. Now, the popular platforms, Teams and so forth, have proven really invaluable, especially when people were forced to be remote because of the pandemic. And now that's kind of set in. So what has to be the next, I guess piece of technology to enhance these types of platforms such that collaboration is improved and the user experience is improved with better sound, maybe better video. I mean, you know how some of these things sound. It's extremely fatiguing after a very short time. Absolutely. I think you use the magic words, user experience. You know, there was a time and it was a long time ago when live video boxes next to one another was a remarkable technical feat, and it was worth talking about on its own. But those days are long behind us. And now what we really need is for the providers that large organizations rely on to really turn back to the user experience and to the, you know, the evolution of what it means for someone to use this technology, not just a few times a week when someone's on the road, you know, traveling for, for work and they need to, to phone in or video into a to a meeting, but really every day, this these products have not evolved enough in the last 10 years, certainly not in the last five years. They definitely have, have proved invaluable for getting us through the pandemic challenges. And, you know, we're, we're all better off because they were in place. And for the most part, they held up well. But now that people have a different experience and a different expectation about the role of distributed work in, in their lives, and now that uh, talent acquisition and talent retention really depends on flexibility, these products are going to have to evolve at a much faster rate. Because there are large screen situations and conference rooms where the cameras can follow you around and really good audio and audio fencing and so forth. Lots of technologies are coming in, but it hasn't led to somehow the sense that, gosh, the virtual workspace is great. I mean, should it be where everybody is visible all the time? And you just talk to someone as if they were sitting out there, but they're actually not sitting out there, but you can see them all the time. Is that, mm -hmm. which, is that what we're talking about? I don't think so. I, I think it's a slippery slope to embrace the technology for its own sake. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's very expensive to 
to put screens up all over a conference room and have uh, high definition cameras, you know, less expensive now than it was 10 years ago, but it's still an expensive proposition. It takes time. It takes requisitions. It takes, uh, you know, procurement. And unfortunately, if you take a further step toward, you know, virtual reality headsets and things like that, it just, it just doesn't really make sense. The problem to solve is how can we, you know, the question, the question is how can we, make it so people who are not physically together can collaborate in a natural way. A natural way means a full spectrum of scheduled to unscheduled interactions. Now, that does not mean you always need to be visible. It does not mean you always need to be on camera. It does not necessarily mean anything. It's it's a problem statement. And what the uh, providers of the technology need to do is focus on the problem statement and not on a specific solution like headsets or you know fully connected conference rooms that cost you know a ton of money to install and take years to install before they're operational focus on the problem statement of helping people collaborate in a natural way even when they are not physically together. And that is what should drive the evolution of these products. We're speaking with Adam Riggs. He is CEO of Frameable and a one-time Presidential Innovation Fellow. It sounds like almost like a push-to-talk situation. You know, that's an interesting technology. That is something that, uh, you know, those of us who are old enough to remember the first versions of cell phones, you know, we got to play with that a little bit. I think there is something attractive about the on-demand nature of that, but there's a cultural piece there too. Sure. When you're in a physical office, you have an expectation or at least an awareness that people might approach you in an unscheduled moment to ask for your help or ask you to look at a piece of, you know, a piece of copy, a piece of a document, a design or something that was not on your calendar. When you're in a physical office with a bunch of other people, that is something that you know could happen at any time. It could be a colleague, it could be someone who works for you, or it could be your boss. So one of the most interesting things that's happened in the last couple of years is that people have evolved a, a very different sense of privacy and an expectation of privacy working remotely. I mean, they are in, if they are in their home, uh, this is a private space. And so the idea of being interrupted by a work colleague in your home is a bit disorienting. I mean, you are working, it is, it, is a, it is work hours and I am here at my desk doing work, but the idea that a work colleague could interrupt you during work hours, but in your home is, is, is a bit of a mixed, uh, it's, it's hard to process. So sure. I think that push to talk technology and things that make those kinds of interruptions a little bit easier mechanically, they need to be coupled with a deliberate discussion about the expectation that, hey, we're on a team, we're here doing this work together because it's not something we can do alone. And when we're physically together, we are committed to helping one another. And, you know, within reason, we are available to our colleagues to help them. And some part of that leaning into 
collaboration and and being helpful to colleagues, I think does have to move into the approach to work from home that people have. If they if they insist on all of their interactions being scheduled and on their calendar, it's going to continue to feel disconnected. Sure. And that's the thing people uh, people really have a hard time with with remote work. Because there are non-video options like Slack, which has gotten really popular, and I think Microsoft ended up owning that too, didn't they? And you can make video calls with Slack. They're not high grade, but you can also That's just right. text someone. So is that yeah. what you have in mind or is there some well, bigger picture? I, I, I have the sense you know what this looks like. <laughs> well, we, we have a version which is different from Slack. Slack was purchased by Salesforce, uh, not Microsoft recently. Slack is, you know, it started off as a, uh, a text chat client. There have been many, many generations of text chat clients in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, so it's not new. The video capability is new because they, they realized that people get tired of typing. You know, Slack uh, or any kind of chat system is very useful for supporting asynchronous communication between people who are not actually available at the same moment. It's, it's very uh, efficient, just like email. But at a certain point in that communication, a live interaction becomes the, the natural next step. So we think that text chat, video interactions that are live, your scheduled calendar and email all have to come together as kind of the four corners of digital communication infrastructure in a natural way. Part of the problem is that if you are a company that relies on different providers for these four cornerstones, you're going to have a hard time presenting an integrated experience to your employees. I'm not saying everything should always come from the same vendor. I'm just saying that um, whether it comes from the same vendor or not, the focus should be on the integrated experience uh, for the employee because the integrated experience that they have for themselves is what's going to begin to translate into natural interactions with their colleagues, if that makes sense. Sure. And if you can get all of this together then to get to our theme here, then is it possible that the federal government as a large entity, a large presence in, say, the District of Columbia or other cities too, but I think as a percentage, it's the most in D.C., maybe Baltimore also, that they could just go ahead and proceed with permanent telework at the level that it is and greater choice, and it will seem more effective as a way to work. Well, yes. I mean, I I think there are many ways to improve the the toolkit that exists right now, and I think that doing so will help the C-suite in the private sector and the decision makers in the public sector understand that it's a false choice. The choice of either come back together in person or produce inferior work, this is not the choice. There is a way to produce excellent work at high velocity and keep the, you know, the esprit de corps up and the excitement up and the innovation up. But you have to look at the tools that you're providing your your team and your workforce, and you you have to be realistic about what's possible. So if the decision makers are not willing or able to take a fresh look at the tooling, then it's possible, and especially if they have a huge uh, real estate commitment, that the most logical thing that they can do is just insist that everybody come back to the real estate footprint that they've invested in. 
But if there is a commitment to right-sizing the real estate footprint, if there's a commitment to um, finding talent where it is and being flexible about people's balance of, you know, balance, the balance of time that they, that they have. I mean, the, the, the work, the work from home statistics are pretty striking at the moment. It's a little more than an hour a day, something like 70 minutes a day on average is saved on a day where someone works from home versus when they work, uh, uh, including their commute. What they do with that time is pretty remarkable. About half that time saved, the time saved, about half that time goes to more work. And about the other half of that time goes to a mix of personal health, family obligations, you know, cooking, wellness, et cetera. So it can truly be a win-win for both the employer and the employee. If the hybrid schedule is enforced in the right way, if people, when they come into work, are coming in on the same day as the colleagues they need to connect with, and if the tooling that they are able to use when they are working from home is up to the task. Adam Riggs is CEO of Frameable and a one-time Presidential Innovation Fellow, serial entrepreneur. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive wherever you happen to be. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, Washington, D.C.'s commercial real estate industry. They're also wondering whether feds will return to the office. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The ongoing question of whether federal employees with offices in the District of Columbia will return four or five days a week, it's not just a matter of restaurants and retail stores. The commercial real estate industry, which houses all of these elements, is also looking at a cloudy crystal ball. Joining me with that point of view, Jones Lang LaSalle, Senior Managing Director, Howard Trawl. Mr. Trawl, good to have you on. Great to be on, Tom. Thanks a lot for having me. And just give us a sense, if you would, of how big a footprint the U.S. government has in the district in terms of number of leases and square feet. Yeah, right now, GSA has 184 active leases within the District of Columbia. Those 184 leases account for about a total of 17.5 million square feet. Wow. Is that the biggest lessee in the district? I believe it counts for about 20% of the total square footage of office spaces in the district. Probably a little bit more than law firms even, which is a big footprint. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And just generally, commercial real estate in the district since the pandemic came and mostly went, what is the state of the health, would you say, of the commercial real estate industry? We've been up and down. Vacancy is still very high. I can tell you that for sure. The highest it's been in quite a while, and it remains high relative to pre-pandemic levels. But you caught me on a good day because there actually has been, you know, in the last, I'd say, month or two, a decent amount of activity in the GSA world, at least. You know, active procurements. Um, I'd say, you know, right now, GSA is out in the market with over 30 leases, you know, 30 active procurements. That's great for the market. Well, then I guess to a building owner and to a broker such as yourself, it really doesn't matter whether people come in or not. As long as the lease is being paid, it might even be less headaches if fewer people are in there. I wouldn't exactly say that, Tom. No. I mean, a lot of these leases are much smaller than we've seen. 
that 30, you know, that is a lot of churn, I'd say. But I'd say before that, it was quite quiet. And I think what you're seeing is the GSA coming up with a plan for some of these leases and actually executing on it, which is great to see. But to your point, no, I mean, a lot of these deals, like I said, are smaller and they're they're becoming less and less. You're seeing these, you know, active procurements when leases expire, go away instead of renew or be competed. Yeah, that was my question. Does it look as if the government is actively trying to shrink the number of square feet that it has and maybe consolidate agencies that might have had separate leases in separate buildings or even multiple zones in a given building and squeezing the people that are there closer together? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes. With the large leases that you're seeing in the area, uh, you know, prospectus-sized leases, leases that the GSA has to request from Congress to move forward on, they're shrinking by 20%, if not more. We're seeing up to 50% of consolidation with these shrinking footprints. So the short answer is there's a lot of square footage that will be disappearing from the GSA's footprint. And I think we'll continue to see that, quite frankly, as well. And that's mostly Class A space, too, isn't it? Class B, Class A, yes. Yes, Class B plus, but absolutely, yes. But, you know, GSA is moving, you know, trying to move, I would say, uh, to a flight to quality. And based on some of their minimum requirements that they have for base building, I think you'll start seeing that as well. We're speaking with Howard Trawl. He's senior managing director of the commercial real estate firm Jones Lang LaSalle. And do you have visibility into the types of build outs that they want for these new leases? Can we tell that is whether it's cubicle farms for lots of people or is it more that hotel drop in type of space, which is a different design and different build out requirements? Do you have that picture? Yeah, I mean, you're seeing it across the board. You know, a lot of the build-outs are driven by the mission of those different agencies. And there are instances, absolutely, where GSA is building out hoteling and hot desking areas. But there's also, you know, if you go into a DOJ or, you know, USAO kind of thing, you're, you're seeing kind of the typical large offices with the open floor plan in the middle. It's really all just driven by what the agency needs to accomplish in that space. But the trend is less space as leases expire and you are seeing consolidation. That's right. Absolutely. And as you know, Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., has said that she would like to see more space freed up for other purposes to, I don't know, develop entrepreneurs or whatever. And so if a building has 100,000 square feet of government and now under the new consolidation, it's got 75,000 square feet of government, that leaves a fresh 25,000 square feet. Who's coming in or who could potentially come in there? I don't know that you'd see buildings multi-tenanted with mixed uses, a residential in an office building. Not certain you're going to see that, you know, almost very unlikely. But should some of these buildings that are of a certain vintage and, you know, maybe less useful as office buildings get converted, you know, you are seeing that across D.C. in, in several instances. But You know, I think really the attention needs to be paid to just getting workers back downtown in the office space. The life and vitality of downtown D.C. really depends on workers being downtown, the restaurants, all the, you know, retail that you can think of around the city. And quite frankly, you know, one of the bigger issues I think that you'll see down the road are tax revenues dropping. All the municipalities around the DMV, you know, run on these tax revenues from commercial and residential buildings. 
And a lot of those owners, if they don't have tenants paying rent, they're not going to be able to pay their taxes or the tax revenues are going to be you know, severely depleted. Yeah, this is kind of a nationwide phenomenon if you follow real estate. And just out of curiosity, we mentioned law firms earlier. You're the government side of Jones Lang LaSalle. But what do you hear from the rest of the company? That is to say, law firms have gone heavily into remote working from my experience, because I talked to a lot of them. And is that similar type of consolidation happening for that type of tenant? I think you're seeing a little bit different firm to firm. And I think for the new associates, I'm being told, they do wish to work from home. But I do also hear that, you know, being in the office and being able to collaborate with those senior partners is something that they do wish to do. There's this meeting in the middle, I think, within the law firm practice right now. But the objective then of the real estate industry is to be tenant agnostic. You just want the square footage leased one way or the other. The reason I ask is there's a little bit of a disconnect between having a building fully leased and that street vitality because they may lease it, but not everyone is coming in of the population of that given lessee on a given day. Yeah, and I think what you see there really, Tom, is once leases expire – you know, that's when you see a decrease in the occupancy of the building. But yes, I mean, there's a lot of leases that were maybe 10-year leases that were signed right before the pandemic. A lot of that lease space hasn't been occupied since then. And there might be four or five lease uh, years left on those leases. But that's really why, you know, getting people back downtown and figuring out really from the GSA agency perspective, what is the long-term solution? Because I can tell you, you know, in my dealings, at least things are taking longer. And I think that you're seeing that frustration, not just in my world by any means, but, you know, you see it on the Hill with different acts being proposed. You see it just from a consumer basis, I think. A lot of the customer service, if you will, from the government standpoint, they're just not meeting, you know, the grade right now. And that's that's really what I'd like to see is some actual direction from our commander in chief, quite frankly, to kind of get everybody back in and figure out what the long-term solution is and not, you know, these kind of kick the can temporary solutions. And just a final question, have any building owners that you're aware of, or have they talked to you about this, considered just kicking all the tenants out that are commercial and converting to housing or condos or apartments, if that's even physically feasible? No, there, you know, like I mentioned before, there are absolutely buildings of a certain vintage where those office building owners look to sell to a residential developer, but not if you're a have decent occupancy and, you know, you're a class B, class A trophy building. Now, you're speaking to me from Washington, D.C., Jones Lang LaSalle's a national company, JLL. What are you seeing in terms of federal occupancy and general occupancy in other cities? You know, from the federal standpoint, I speak with government employees and brokers and building owners, and I do see outside of the D.C. metropolitan area a lot more people in the office working, you know, regardless if it's a very vanilla office job or something that maybe is more mission related. For whatever reason, outside of the DMV, I'm, I'm just hearing and talking to people more that are in the office versus out of the office. Howard Trawl is Senior Managing Director of the commercial real estate firm Jones Lang LaSalle. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Like so many agencies, the Air Force is working to establish zero trust in its technology systems to avoid cyber attacks. Among its top priorities, modernizing its identity and credentialing systems for financial management. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr got the lowdown on a few new test programs from Air Force Chief Technology Officer Jay Bonsey. So we have a number of ICAM initiatives that uh, have started a few years ago and are, are moving forward Our identity, as you're aware, identity is the basis of uh, zero trust. And there are a a number of elements, even with an identity, that we have to get right. We have to make sure that uh, the credentials are correct. Um, And we we have the DOD Common Access Card, which is a common, as the name suggests, common credential uh, across uh, many of our uh, sort of enterprise day-to-day workers, but we have other communities that we have to serve. Uh, we have our retirees and beneficiaries. We have not appropriated users. We have U.S. mission partners uh, in our sister services, uh, and we have uh, non-U.S. mission partners um, for things like our mission partner environment, uh, where we work with our coalition uh, partners and allies. So ICAM is an incredibly huge umbrella with a number of uh, technical complexities. Again, uh, a lot of this is laid out uh, in our ICAM roadmap, um, and we are kind of systematically uh, getting after it. This year, uh, we are specifically focused on ICAM to drive adoption in order to express separation of duties uh, to meet our FIRE audit responsibilities. Um, And so these separation of duties in our financial and financial feeder systems uh, are designed to make sure uh, that uh, we have good, provable uh, control over uh, the money, um, which is very important to to Congress and therefore very important to us. And it is uh, a group of about 70 or 80 applications. However, separation of duties is the same thing uh, inside of Zero Trust. So it's a good place to start. Um, It is very much a clarifying use case, and it's going to help us develop our governance uh, and our application onboarding that we are going to be able to generalize to uh, the rest of the Air Force. For specific pilots that we're running this year, we are working on uh, pilots towards our deployed and disadvantaged use case. So this is for where we have to take uh, applications downrange with us, um, which increasingly we're going to have to do, and also for networks that aren't enterprise connected. And so we have many sensitive data environments out there, and we want to make sure that we are providing enterprise services uh, to those areas as well. All right. To break it down a little bit more, going back to the financial networks, exactly who and what will be affected by that? Our financial and financial feeder systems are a group of uh, applications across logistics, personnel, and uh, the FM community uh, broadly. Um, it is being overseen. This effort is being overseen uh, by FM, MG, SAFCN, um, some of the other two letters, as well as our functional communities that provide those systems. Um, those systems have already been contacted. Uh, they know about their FIRE audit responsibilities, um, and we are working through them systematically to help them identify where uh, they need to separate duties, where inside those applications we need to make sure that we're enforcing uh, to make sure sample things like if you put in a purchase order, you can't approve it, uh, those types of uh, sample motions. And again, this is this is part of the motion broadly about uh, zero trust, right? We have to develop services that make it easy uh, to make sure that you're answering these uh, security and auditability concerns. And then also the application has to do the work to come on board. And so we've provided provided the services necessary to do that. And we're providing uh, support to help coach those applications through that transition. All right. And how about the staff you need to administer the new programs do you have? Do you have enough trained staff who understand how to use it? Is it something that won't be that difficult a jump for staff? Tell me a little about that. 
there's a lot to unpack inside of staffing, specifically around identity. Identity is an incredibly complicated topic. When we talk about uh, what best practices are, we're still developing that, and we are still staffing up um, our major ICAM initiatives uh, for this year. When we talk about the staff needed to onboard applications, a lot of those are going to be you know, contractor staff as we go through and, and go app by app refactor where necessary, allow them to consume modern identity uh, where available, uh, potentially move to the cloud, depending on those applications. And in particular, inside of the FM uh, ecosystem, there are a number of large ERPs and other very big, very uh, complex applications that are uh, constantly being worked on and constantly being modernized. We are still working on a path to production for our ICAM enterprise, our ICAM enterprise stack and the enterprise service so that we do have good operational control in the 16th Air Force of identity as uh, an operational baseline for the Air Force. Again, this will play into what our concept of operations and concept of uh, implementation is for zero trust broadly, but there is a defined path to production for that. And we're going to be helping uh, to get our operators up to speed and smart on that. So when it uh, hands over to them, they'll be able to take and run with it. Are there more challenges to identity and verification outside CONUS? So uh, again, uh, touching on some of the community uh, elements that we talked about before, non-appropriated users, right? So if you're a contractor over in USAFE or you are a foreign mission partner, there are different classes of identity verification based upon the NIST standards for what we do. Um, We are architecting our enterprise services with certain identity verification elements in place. So our A1 community today has uh, products within their uh, deployment, which do handle verification for retirees, beneficiaries, wounded warriors, et cetera. As we navigate the mission partner environment where we have coalition users, some of that is based upon the individual relations that we have with those partner nations and how they bring identity to the fight. It's a very complex topic, um, but it is something that we are uh, tracking. But broadly, the way that the policy for NIST and others is outlined is uh, you don't always need perfect or rock solid identity verification to be able to transact certain things with the government. So if you have to log into a system, for instance, to if you're a local contractor and you need to be able to do business with us, um, we do need some basic identity verification, but it doesn't have to uh, reach the highest levels uh, within the NIST standard that, you know, the same level that you would have to be issued a DOD ID. And so it, it is a complex space. We do have it. It is pretty well enshrined in policy. And as we continue to address community by community going forward, we are making sure that those uh, credential and those identity store provenance items for when you begin to conduct business with the Air Force, that is covered uh, by enterprise services. If you could name anything or any group of things that you say, this is really a new thing, what have you got for me? Things that are going to be novel and hard for us are going to be deployed and disconnected identity is going to be a challenge. We know that non-person entities really getting that right um, for how that connects between our uh, highly sophisticated DevSecOps ecosystems, as well as our platform deployment ecosystems, our cloud ecosystems, trying to get all of our non-person entities into a coherent end state. Um, that is also going to be a challenge because the, the product landscape requires a lot of integration on that today. Air Force Chief Technology Officer Jay Bonsi speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, why the District of Columbia wants the federal government to fish or cut bait. 
This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Tammen. 